Right, at nine minutes past nine o'clock, we need to move on and it's time for the UK report. Uh, no Gavin Gray this week. He's off gadavanting around somewhere and having a lovely time, I hope. Uh, instead, absolutely delighted to welcome Kate Oliver back uh, to, uh, to Weekend Breakfast. Morning, Kate, and Happy New Year to you. Good morning, Sarah Jane, and I'm happy to be here and Happy New Year to you. Just envying Gavin at the moment. It's quite cold in chilly old London. Yeah, I gather so. I gather so. Well, I'm sorry, we're also experiencing it. It's summer here, of course, in Cape Town, and things are pretty lovely over here. So I won't harp on about the weather and make you envious. We will uh, We will crack straight on. Uh, so, of course, uh, the US um, began its offensive um, against uh, Houthi rebel-controlled territory in Yemen. Britain has now joined the... Uh, that bombing. What's the latest on this, uh, Kay? Well, the latest is that we, we understand that uh, President, American President Joe Biden has actually sent a private letter to Iran about this situation with the Houthis. Um, Lord David Cameron here, he's the Foreign Secretary, has said that we are determined to defend freedom of navigation. And Rishi Sunak has said this is probably the most troubled time for the world. Now, these, uh, these Houthis who back Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, they're standing defiant and say they will continue to strike back. And it's all, obviously, as, as you're aware, the Red Sea navigation and the fact that these Houthi rebels have been attacking ships as they've been traveling through the Red Sea. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very desperate time for these, the kind of the, the, the supply chain, because it seems they're going to have to add thousands of of extra nautical miles to achieve safe passage going um, through the Cape of Good Hope, Southern Africa. So mm-hmm. it really is slowing things down. And we've had the chairman of Maersk Shipping, one of these big container companies, saying that obviously prices here will be impacted by all of it if this situation is allowed to continue. So we know there has been a second day of these uh, strikes against military, military-controlled uh, the territories in, in Yemen. And it continues. People have died. People have been injured. And the UN envoy is keeping, in Yemen, is keeping a very close watch on this. And again, saying a very, very difficult knife-edge situation could uh, simply spiral out of control. Yeah, absolutely. There are, of course, fears of of the sort of escalation of conflict in that region. Um, Sticking on this topic, there was a march here in Cape Town, a pro-Palestinian march yesterday. Uh, Meanwhile, in London, uh, a seventh pro-Palestinian march, nine arrests, three of which were for inciting uh, racial hatred. Absolutely. And it seems that um, these marches will continue. And they have, uh, during during the course of the march, there was basically um, a celebration of the fact that South Africa this week has issued this charge of genocide against Israel yep. for, for obviously the war in Yemen at the International Court of Justice. And there was clearly a lot of support for this. Israel will obviously Uh, has said these charges are false and distorted, that they are fighting Hamas. But clearly, um, these these marches will continue. And and I've just seen that in Scotland, a 70-year-old woman was arrested for driving a vehicle towards, for allegedly driving a vehicle towards the pro-Palestinian protesters in Scotland. So um, a lot of support for for the cause that's going on there. And obviously people very desperately concerned that this this conflict is now going up to 100 days. We're seeing pictures of hospitals in Gaza still without power, children very, very 
badly hurt, injured, and it's an ongoing situation that many people are deeply concerned about. Yeah, absolutely. At the same time, uh, the British Prime Minister was in Kiev uh, meeting the Ukrainian leader uh, and pledged to help in the fight against Russia uh, with uh, an enormous uh, pledge of £2.5 billion. Yes, absolutely, Sarah Jane. And this is something that um, I think Rishi Sunak is very keen to show that whilst the conflict in the Middle East is, is drawing all the attention, they haven't forgotten the, 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 the Russian-Ukrainian conflict. They've signed up a deal for the next financial year. It's going to be, as you say, £2.5 billion. £200 million of that will be spent on drones. There's going to be long-range missiles, air defence and artillery shells. Um, the financial help very much needed to help the Ukrainians continue to, to, start to fight back against the Russians. But it does seem that Bishu um, Sunak is keen to underline that we haven't forgotten that this situation with Ukraine and Russia is still absolutely going on dreadful and that the Ukrainians still need our help. Yeah, absolutely. Overshadowed by uh, what's been going on in the Middle East since October 7th, really. If you're just joining us this morning, uh, we are talking to Kate Oliver in for Gavin Gray for the UK Report. Uh, Next up, uh, Kate, a story that Gavin brought to our attention, I think it was last week or the week before, around a post office scandal that had sort of gone under the radar until a TV drama brought it to the fore again. It's called Mr. Bates versus the Post Office. Uh, But what has now been the outcome um, or one of the uh, fallouts from uh, from this uh, from this TV drama? Well, my goodness me. I mean, this is obviously the doco drama of the year and and it is ongoing. We've seen uh, uh, the former head of the post office, Paula Reynolds, she's handed back her CBE after more than a million people in this country signed a petition after seeing this 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 drama which actually left people crying in the streets. See, these sub postmasters and mistresses um, were basically victims of a computer system called Horizon that was in- introduced in the late 1990s by Fujitsu. And it seems that this, um, this computer was malfunctioning always in favor of the post office and there were masses of deficits, thousands of pounds that these individual sub-postmasters were were being accused of actually, they were being accused of fraud, taken to court, many of them sent to prison, lost their livelihoods, their reputations, they were forced to pay the money back privately and then of course um, nobody would help them. It seemed that until this one postmaster called Alan Bates decided to take, take it on, he wouldn't sign a pledge that he'd committed fraud. He stood out really as a, a beacon of hope. There are calls now for him to be knighted, while some of these politicians who were approached for help and seemed to turn a blind eye to the whole thing. There are calls now for post office bosses to hand back their personal bonuses. They all face, they all also face a 100 pounds a 100 million pounds bill for um in basically they claimed um a tax break for compensation after dealing with all these sub postmasters claims so the whole situation had this drama not happened would probably have been continued um, washed under the carpet as day for as, as long as it took for, for nobody to stand up and be counted in this. But the interesting thing is that as soon as this drama hit the screens, 
action was taken. And yeah. we've now got, um, uh, I think it's the Justice Secretary, Alex Chalk, here. He is basically considering ways to expedite the process of clearing these people's names um, um, so that they can walk away with their heads held high and make it up to £600,000 in compensation. Some people are saying they've lost probably closer to a million, two million pounds. Sure. It's, it really is just the most remarkable story. Um, and, and when Gavin had mentioned it, I said, I, don't, I just don't remember anything about this. And he said, no, but now this this TV show, uh, Mr. Bates versus the Post Office, has has really kind of uh, drawn, drawn attention to it. F- incredible stuff. Next up, I was very surprised to read this um, this on, I think it was on the BBC earlier this week, uh, about the papers which have been released about the final days of um, Queen Elizabeth II. I, I was surprised because I thought it might sort of fall outside of protocol to go into detail around the death of uh, the former British monarch. But what do we now know then about uh, about her last days? Well, this obviously 18 months ago, September the 8th, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. It's now been revealed in, in newly seen documents, which mm. her private secretary, Sir Edward Young, has released, that she slipped away painlessly, without pain, in her sleep, and that it was a very calm, quiet ending for this well-respected and loved monarch. Now, we've seen those last pictures of her. She was frail, mm. and... Um, she was uh, basically saying hello officially to the new then British Prime Minister Liz Truss. Um, that was, I think, one day before she passed away. And um, these documents, I think probably that there are things that we will never find out. But apparently the Queen had still been working on her red box, which was in her room, and um, which had two personal... I think it was letters to Sir Edward Young, her private secretary, and to the the Prince of Wales then, the new king, just really with some, perhaps some advice. We've also heard that um, King Charles was out picking mushrooms when he got a phone call addressing him as Your Majesty. So that's how he discovered about the passing of his, you know, of his his dear mum. So, yes, I mean, we were royal biographers last night being interviewed were saying probably in our lifetimes we will never know the full extent no. of these papers. But very interesting that the royal biographer Robert Hardman has now released a, a, a big kind of story about these. I do wonder, though, Ken, I have to be slightly cynical. I mean, it's that's how royalists and and i suppose everybody nobody wants to think of somebody passing away in a, in a terrible way but that's that it sort of puts a nice bow on it doesn't it and she died peacefully in her sleep i doubt if it had been something other than that we would we would have heard about that um it seems unlikely that we would have heard you know and she was screaming in agony in her last hours it seems unlikely that we would have heard that uh, but still let's hope that uh, this is an accurate, um, an accurate uh, account of what happened, and she should die peacefully uh, in in her sleep. Um, measles. Now, um, in South Africa, we um, particularly parents have been warned about um, a measles outbreak, a resurgence of measles. It's been uh, going round. My four-year-old had um, her second measles jab. My little one's just had his his MMR. Um, but there's been a fifty percent rise in the numbers of measles cases in England and Wales which is uh, among the highest since uh, the 90s. Absolutely. There's 1,600 cases in England and Wales in 2023. Now, that doubled from the previous year. And as you say, 
SGA, people here, a lot of the, a lot of parents were very concerned by allegations from a, a doctor called Andrew Wakefield, probably about uh, 20 years ago, that the MMR jab caused autism, mm. and it would seem that the uptake fell here after that. Now, only 95% of children, to, to wipe out measles, you need 95% of children to have had these MMR jabs. That's two jabs by the age of five, and yeah. it seems that only 85% are getting these jabs. Why we've had this kind of upsurge of of of, should we say, not taking the jab, West Midlands and London, a lot of people are saying that the the um, the allegations by Andrew Wakefield still frighten people really? from having this jab. And absolutely. And also that a lot of um, Muslim families are very concerned about pork products within the jabs um, themselves. So that could account for some of this. But obviously measles is such a horrible, horrible um, uh, disease to get. If you haven't had the jabs and your immunity is low, it can lead to disabilities and even death. So it, it is quite a scary one. Um, we'll see now with this new new kind of revelation if people are rushing back to the doctors to get the jabs. It is interesting, and I remember a few months back when this um, sort of b- broke in, in, in South Africa, uh, and there was a paediatrician uh, who was interviewed on this station who said that, put doubt, put it down to the fact that people had, in light of COVID, become quite suspicious about vaccines, full stop. Yes. Uh, and so that was that was sort of being linked uh, as well, and, and this person was sort of urging people not to be, and saying that they were, they were safe, but there we are. Um, all right, I love this. Uh, well, no, actually, no, not this one, but the next, your next story. But this one, uh, Sakia Starmer, who is the Labour leader, uh, wants to end, although I quite like this one too, what he calls the embarrassment of British children uh, being shorter than children from other nations by making them brush their teeth at school, uh, banning junk food ads before 9pm, and, and this is definitely a good one, boosting mental health support. Um most hospital admissions for six to ten-year-olds are for dental decay. Absolutely, hospital. I mean, it's a shocker, isn't it? Absolutely, hospital. Yeah, because we don't have as many NHS dentists oh, in this course, country yeah. as we used to have, so that's one of the reasons that these children, their teeth are so rotten and decayed. They're literally having to have them extracted under maybe a general anaesthetic because also children, I don't know about you, but I hated going to the dentist when I was a child. Love it now. I have to just put in. But um, I think children are so frightened of going to the dentist. They've kind of got the excuse now of, of kind of hiding away. And we've got children who absolutely don't know how to brush their teeth. So this came out last week. I mean, talk about the nanny state. You're going to go into school with a toothbrush and toothpaste and a teacher or a teaching assistant will supervise how you brush your teeth, which actually probably isn't such a bad idea if dentists aren't, if they're not going to a dentist and being taught by a hygienist how to do it. But my goodness me, I mean, parents, that, that a lot of people who are saying this is absolutely, you, you know, nanny state gone mad. Why aren't the parents or guardians teaching their children to brush their teeth? I mean, what next? 
It's you know what, Kay, and this is really funny, is that I I sit on both sides of this. So on the one hand, I think, great, yes, let's get our kid. You know, you can't brush your teeth too much. Great, go to school, brush your teeth, whatever. Fantastic. I I don't know that it's uh, our teachers should be teaching. They, I mean, maybe supervise and make sure it's happening, but I don't. I certainly don't expect the 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 teachers at my daughter's crest to teach her. Although they did have a little road show the other day where Colgate came round and gave them all a, oh. you know. Yeah, they did. They did do that. But it's not great I don't, idea. A great idea. But I don't expect that of of the school however i'm also a mum of a four-year-old who i and i have to battle to get <laughs> to clean her teeth so i quite like the idea of the responsibility being put on somebody else although ultimately if i'm paying school fees which i am i would prefer that that money is being spent um on the teachers teaching my child something of use yeah. you know really from a from an academic uh perspective but um yeah totally agree. it's it's a it's a although i seem to remember um, a similar sort of roadshow event happening at my school when I was very, very, very small and we got taught how to brush our teeth. But, I mean, it wasn't a daily occurrence. Um, banning the junk food ads before 9pm, I mean, yeah, I don't think there's any harm in that. And certainly, I mean, boosting mental health support, that should be uh, number one. I'm much more concerned with the mental health support than I am with, with the other two, in all honesty. Right, right now, this is a story that I love. I'll tell you why, Kay, because I've started to, um, I'm doing Friends again. It's on Netflix. I started at episode one. Yeah, yeah. As if I didn't see enough of it in the 90s on Channel 4 and the Endless Repeats. I've I've started it again from the beginning because I'm a big, big fan of Ross, Rachel, uh, Monica, Chandler, Phoebe and Joey. Uh, But scripts for two episodes, specifically the episode set in London, where in series two, I think, or maybe three, uh, where Ross uh, wed Emily, who was played by the British actress. Oh, and I can't remember her name, but anyway, uh, Baxendale. There we go, Claire, uh, Claire Baxendale. Uh, they've Claire been... Baxendale. It is Claire Baxendale, isn't it? Definitely Baxendale. I'm not sure if her first I'm not sure if Claire. it is Claire. I've made it up. Anyway, Ms. Baxendale. Uh, these two scripts have been rescued from a bin. They've just sold at auction for £22,000. Unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that um, these scripts, apparently, they should have been destroyed at the end of this episode. But somebody left these draft copies behind and a cleaner found them in the bin. I mean, how fantastic is that? And one of the episodes that was being filmed, as you say, is the um, the marriage of, of Ross to Emily when actually he gets the name wrong. I don't know if you remember this or you've got up to of this. Of course again, I do. Yeah, he says ma- Rachel. Well, he's about to marry Emily <laughs> and goodness me, what is the name that comes out as he's taking the vows at the altar? It's Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> and there's Jennifer Aniston sitting there with her beautiful bobbed blonde hair yeah. all surprised. Oh my God, he still loves me. <laughs> and I think everybody in this country absolutely loves Friends. And my son, he's 24, he still watches Friends because he says it's got the feel-good factor. Yep. So I think on these kind of deep, dark days and you're feeling a bit low, everybody seems to want to go into that coffee shop that sent, you know, friends are all in that coffee shop. And it's just light banter and it seems to cheer everybody up. And so these auctioneers... 
it's at the end of the day. I promise you this: at the end of the day, when my I finally got my two kids in bed, what I, I give myself an episode or two of Friends. I take myself away from the you know the 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 rat race of life and you know and all the miserable stories that I write in the yeah. week and various other things, and I immerse myself in Friends. And it really has got. I'm with your son. It really has got that feel good factor. <laughs> Oh, wonderful. Well, let's say, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll carry on watching it. I mean, how long is this going to run and run and run? But I have to say, you know, the, 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 the things that they covered, that you kind of, you still laugh and you think, was I, was, you know, they were just such a lovely group of friends and what a brilliant idea. Yeah. And it is just real life and fantastic. You know what's really interesting, though, is now, and I was saying this to a friend of mine who's also re-watching, the stuff that, and it was, it was, it was, it was great. It was like it was a different type of comedy that we'd seen coming from the states. Really, there was something a bit edgy and a bit smarter about it. And but actually, some of the stuff that I watch now, it's quite problematic. I mean, first of all, where in New York City, you know, would you find a group of six exclusively and exclusively white people living in New York City, one of the most diverse yeah. cities in the world? Second yeah, of all, so you're right there. <laughs> How on earth would they have afforded to live in Greenwich Village, which is one of the most expensive suburbs of uh, of, of New York? Yeah, in, in one of those in one of those apartments. Um, when they seem to, at various times, be unemployed, various ones of them. Um, Joey comes out as quite the misogynist, it has to be said, and various other problematic things. But I let it all go. I don't care. I don't care. It's funny. It's sweet. And of course, it's it's for me now. You know, with the death of Matthew Perry, um, it, oh, yeah. it, it's lovely to it's. It's just lovely to see. I think he was such a comedic talent. He was brilliant. Right, now, your last story, from from something hilarious to something not quite so funny, uh, but to a pub where two of the victims of the infamous uh, Victorian murder murderer Jack the Ripper drank before their deaths um, and is also an essential pit stop on an, on an East London walking tour, has gone up for sale. Why? Well, I think it's because of this cost of living crisis. And I have to say that I have been to that pub. It's the oh. Ten Bells in Spitalfields, which I think in the 1970s was called the Jack the Ripper. And it seems that people, cost of living crisis going on here, people haven't been popping in for a pint. So the pub, which is featured on lots of walking tours, it's a place where Mary Jane Kelly and Annie Chapman Two of the victims' victims were having their um, drinks before they went off and met whoever this this Jack the Ripper figure mm. turned out to be. They met him down a dark alley, and obviously it was a grim death. Yeah. And nobody ever really knew who Jack the Ripper was, but there were all sorts of allegations going around at the time that it might have been somebody, a surgeon or a link with the royal family. Yeah. But anyway, this pub has come up. And um, the owners are the East London Pub Company. I think they've got a couple of other pubs in the London area that are also going to have to close. So whether or not somebody is going to take this pub over with all the, the connotations and connections, one can only wonder. But I'm not sure I'd fancy moving into a, a flat that's kind no. of got connections to the, to the, to the uh, Jack the Ripper if they, they knock it down and rebuild it. But this obviously is well here. So many pubs in this country are closing at the moment. People just aren't going out. I think it's a post-COVID thing. Yeah. And also, price for a pint, very expensive. Very, very expensive. Cost of living uh, rising everywhere. Kay, it's always lovely to have you. Thank you very much indeed. I believe we're with you again next week. 
Absolutely, looking forward to it. Good so have stuff. a good week. Watch Friends, and yeah. uh, let's all. Well, I've got to cheer up in this horrible, dark, cold weather here. Get yourself <laughs> onto Friends, Kay. That'll sort you out. Kay Oliver standing in for Gavin Gray.